Hello, everyone. You're listening to Future Chain, your source for thought leadership on machine learning and artificial intelligence in supply chain management. I'm your host, Greg Fawcett. I have worked with AI, ML, NLP, and predictive analytics applications in industries from advertising to telecom. We're going to talk about all these technologies and how they bring value to supply chain management. We're also going to talk about the overall evolution of supply chain management. Our guest today is Jack Freeman. Jack is a principal at Peakspan Capital. Jack has been working with growth stage business software companies for seven years, including 15 Peakspan portfolio companies. Jack leads Peakspan's supply chain, procurement, and e-commerce sectors, working with companies such as XOI, Equid, Stylitics, and Groupi. Prior to Peakspan, Jack worked in investment banking at Macquarie Capital, and before that, at StackPop, a B2B SaaS startup. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Terrific. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of your interests? Happy to start there, Greg. Um, so I will start off hot by by trying to tie a lot of my my interests back to supply chain because what what type of supply chain investor would I be if not you know starting from from the ground truth when I was little? Um, so my my upbringing uh, grew up in the Northeast. I played soccer my entire life and, and got into running. Um, a lot later in life. I've always been pretty fascinated by efficiency. One uh, interesting maybe use case that I can tie to a peak span investment was when you order food, um, the whole idea of click and collect. So, you know, call your favorite deli ahead of time and say, I'd like my my sandwich this way. I'll be there to, to pick it up. That was kind of a, a manual process back in the day. And, and now we have text platforms that can help text a business ahead of time, place an order. Uh, today in retail, you obviously have click and collect on a much broader scale with you know, ordering something online and picking it up uh, in store. Um, our, our platform there was a company called Zingle, uh, which is a, a guest engagement platform that also worked with uh, small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they did that exact use case, but with kind of delightful customer experience and lots of automation on the back end. Um, I'd say from there, my passion for efficiency kind of continued to proliferate in my life, whether I knew it or not. Um, in college, I graduated from, from Middlebury. I did a project on what was called combinatorial optimization, which is a concept that I'm sure many supply chain folks know well. But as a student, I applied it to sports schedules. So, you know, think about all the variables that go into optimizing the the MLB schedule, right? You have lots and lots of teams, uh, lots of televised games, um, teams that travel across the country, you know, every day, really. And in order to make that all work, it's one big supply chain optimization problem. So what I did was took our, uh, NES, the NESCAC is the, the league that I played in at the time. We took sports schedules from all fall sports. So men's soccer, women's soccer, field hockey, football. And the rules were you had to play every team twice in the season. You had to have an equal amount of home and away games. You couldn't miss class because it was very kind of academically forward league. 
And uh, through taking all those components, you know, the, the name of the game was to optimize the, the sports schedule, minimize you know cost and classes missed and maximize for kind of equality of schedule. Um, we ended up doing that, that project for the league and submitting it to the director, which helped inform the schedule for the next year. Um, from, from there, um, you mentioned my background, right? Uh, investment banking, a little bit of a BNB SaaS startup, but really at all these firms um, developed a passion for continued efficiency and optimization. Uh, PeakSpan ourselves, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to go into more detail on PeakSpan later in the call. We're a relatively uh, young firm, so we've been around for six years. And I would say about 25% of my time spent has been optimizing PeakSpan, so helping drive efficiency and automation in our processes to make us a more optimal firm. Um, so all, all in all, you know, just trying to tie together my background between upbringing, school, previous work, there's always been this central thread of a passion for efficiency, which has led to today leading PeakSpan's supply chain investing effort. That's terrific. Uh, I love the sports scheduling optimization. I'm a huge hoops fantasy fan and participant in when I was in B school, I actually, uh, you know, wrote a program for the the league that I'm in. So I have a an affinity for what you've done. So that's terrific. So now you're at Peakspan, starting with the company's mission. Walk us through that. Absolutely. And back to your your sports scheduling comment. One of the reasons that I also love this problem of optimization is there's no, you, you can't win at it. You can only get better. There's not enough compute power in the world to optimize the MLB schedule. Um, it's continued to get better and better and better through uh, you know, rules-based algorithms and more um, running more scenarios. But uh it just fascinates me that you, you can't find the optimal schedule. Um, it, it, it still is, is being run. So um, just wanted to close out that thought. Then on Peakspan, starting with our mission, it's to be the, the partner of choice for growth stage software entrepreneurs and, and management teams. Um, so let me just un unpack that for a second, because I'm sure listeners are familiar with all sorts of walks of life for investors. Um, so you have private equity, venture capital, the concept of growth equity has existed for, for about a decade now. And um, we are what I would call emerging growth equity. So even taking a step back, capital is surely a commodity. And our mission is to um, not be a commodity provider, right? We are, yes, a capital provider, but Everything we do, all of our initiatives and resource and efforts and, and really how we structure our focus is designed to drive impact and value. So how do we do that? First is focus and specialization. And Greg, I know we're going to talk about specialization later in, a, in one of the trends, but um, as it pertains to Peakspan, hyper-focus. So you know, maybe pillar one to hit, we just do business software. I can go through, if helpful, some of the initiatives that we undertake and the resources we put together uh, to, to drive impact on a business software front, including an operating advisory board, but also just being in the space for a long time. So as a group, we partnered with 50 plus 
growth stage business software entrepreneurs and um, have put together just a number of programs that we think uh, we know, you know, provide value, like bringing in experts from our past CEO coaches, um, CFOs who have gone through inorganic strategy over and over again to help uh, coach and be resources for our companies. So you know, business software is one. We don't do consumer or hard tech or biotech, just business software. Two, within business software, if you're a partner or principal at Peakspan, you're only focusing on three to four what we call blueprint market themes. These would be kind of sectors or industries to, to anyone listening at any point in time. So like you mentioned, I lead our supply chain procurement e-commerce themes along with one of my colleagues, Phil, and we you know, wake up every day and the supply chain e-commerce stratosphere is is you know what we eat, sleep, and breathe. We we read all the relevant news. We're speaking with all the relevant strategic acquirers, um, finding the, the most innovative kind of software startups in the space, uh, and scale ups in the space, and building relationships, uh, writing kind of white papers, and doing research on what e-commerce leaders at retailers are buying. So through that focus, strive to A, identify categories that we think are interesting to invest in, and B, assist our portfolio companies that are in the supply chain and e-commerce spaces with uh, market intelligence and uh, various endeavors of that nature. Let's drill down into supply chain and procurement. So what, what are your, your technology platforms? So supporting you know our, our sourcing efforts and our you know, portfolio company development efforts. Um, obviously, the investing world is a people business, but you know, in in the year of 2021, um, shame on us if we're not trying to use technology to drive further automate automation and intelligence in our in our own firm. Um, so we we consider ourselves one of the first tech-enabled growth equity firms. We're not the only ones, but um, I think it's a, a trend that is a bit slow in this industry versus like let's say. Um, you know, the software space or um, even the healthcare space, right? Every vertical is adopting technology and it does not stop at investors. So what do we do? Two principal platforms. One is our company intelligence platform called ADA. With ADA, we index uh, about 800,000 plus private software companies where we um, ingest data from various sources and run our own algorithms to predict growth buzz, capital efficiency, and a bunch of other related metrics that really we would care deeply about as investors and partners. So customer sat, employee sat, any other kind of breadcrumbs that we think would be interesting to gain a deeper perspective on the space um, is is what we're interested in tracking down. Um, We also intertwine that with all of our internal systems to make us more uh, efficient at doing our our day job so that we can free up our time to spend it with our entrepreneurs, which um, I, I may have mentioned at the beginning. Our our um, mission, right, is to be the partner of choice for growth stage entrepreneurs, and the, w- the way you do that, in our view, is um, to, to optimize your your time and your business to ensure that you're always there, always on for your your CEOs and management teams, and always being helpful. And, and technology is a way that we we do that. It's an ingredient to our, our cake. Platform two is a sector intelligence platform. So similar to the company intelligence platform, 
Um, the sector intelligence platform ingests blogs and periodicals from um, a couple thousand sources, um, which has led to a couple million pieces of content. And what we do there is index companies, sectors, like the, the name of the sector, and then terms to run, you know, correlation. So what is Medallia talking about? What is SAP talking about? What is um, reputation.com talking about? Uh, and then and then correlate those terms, see who's overlapping, who's not. Um, we can also look at, you know, sustainability, the word sustainability, how has that been used in the press over the last four years? Um, in an upcoming uh, blog post we're going to publish, you'll see that chart and it's up and to the right because sustainability is a concept that uh, enterprises and supply chain executives are thinking about more and more and more and for good reason. But being able to see that trend play out over time through our tech has helped us focus on the, the theme kind of early and often. So um, those are our two tech platforms, Greg. Uh, Ada is the company intelligence and Dewey is the sector intelligence. Terrific. Now, you, you've talked about, uh, you know, the aspiration for optimization, you know, never reaching perfection. And uh, in the spirit of what's happening in, in Washington and aspiring to a more perfect union, what kind of efficiencies do you strive for at Peakspan? The main topic I'd hit here is one that the, the investing world knows well and entrepreneurs surely know it well, which is what's called an engine room model. And our, our one of our founders was actually a part of one of these engine rooms. Early innovators include kind of Summit, TEA, General Atlantic, and um, they have done really, really well with this model, but it's an inside sales model, essentially. So it's using kind of human, really intelligent human capital to, um, you know, call upon a high volume of CEOs and, and get um, market intelligence, i.e. revenue and growth to see if it would be a fit. And um, you then kind of funnel up those metrics up the flagpole. Um, and if you're lucky, you get a call with a partner. Um, so Peakspan, and this is a really a setup to, to the efficiency comment, Greg. Um, at Peakspan, we flip that model on its head. So uh, you mentioned I've been partnering with um, growth stage business software companies for, for seven years. A majority of that time, um, I've been working with um, a partner uh, to, to do outreach and build a thesis and partner with a company. We have teams under us that support our um, efforts, but every outreach is led by a partner principal. So in my case, for a supply chain prospect, um, I'm reaching out directly with my thesis on the space. And our model, just in a nutshell, is optimizing around that conversation for the entrepreneur, right? You're, you're getting reached out to, to someone who's been researching your space for several years, has a thesis. You don't need to waste time um, pitching on why the, the market is interesting because we know that it's interesting. And, you know, in summary, how do you do that? Because, you know, time is, is, a, is a precious asset, right? How, how do you do that? You do it with technology, right? You do it with our, our Ada and Dewey platforms, and then through intense automation of everything else, we're not spending 80% of our time reaching out and scouring the earth for the next investment. Um, we actually know 
within supply chain, the several sectors where our next investment is going to come from because they've been kind of research informed. And through our platform, we know the players in the space and we know generally who's a good fit scale wise. And we can take, uh, we, we use this analogy of, of spear fishing versus trawling for, for fish, right? So we're not taking that big net and capturing all the fish and then you know, sifting through them and seeing who's the best fit. Um, we're, we're spear fishing. We know exactly which fish we want and we're reaching out and we're building a direct and strong relationship. And, and we think that that's a lost art in, in our world, just given the volume of software companies out there and the volume of capital chasing those software companies. So uh, all in all, we strive to be different through just a hyper-targeted approach where we're putting the entrepreneur back in the center of the conversation versus being about the uh, the investor. Excellent. Where do you personally add value at Peakspan? A couple of different flavors of that I'd hit first um, from a SaaS perspective. So, you know, our 50 plus growth stage business software investments have led to loads of expertise on uh, growth stage or emerging growth stage, as I call it. Essentially, when you grow from you know, three to five million, which is where we focus initially on the low end, to 25 million plus, there are a lot of initiatives you're going to undertake, like hiring, positioning your, your brand, um, maybe working with industry analysts for the first time, maybe creating an offshore development organization, um, building an operating model or fine-tuning an operating model, um, capitalization strategy, when and how to raise capital, um, strat dev, which you're, you should always be doing um, and always building relationships with your most logical strategic acquirer. So th- those are just topics, but those topics are supported by uh, a team of seasoned SaaS investors, 12 plus operating advisors from, um, from, you know, firms like, you know, Zenefits and NetSuite and Oracle and, and lots of, you know, great kind of past successes where we brought on, um, these operating advisors to help our businesses handle topics that they've already been through. So don't, don't make the same mistakes as they did kind of, kind of model. Um, second flavor through our, blueprint theme sector expertise, we're building up uh, sector expert benches. So in the supply chain and procurement spaces, we have nearly 10 sector experts. These are either folks at incumbents. um, These could be enterprises. So chief supply chain officers or chief procurement officers. They could be industry analysts and influencers. Um, but anyway, we, we map all those experts to areas that we think our portfolio companies in the space could could find value in. So, you know, in the e-commerce supply chain spaces, we're um, working with folks that, um, that that can help navigate strategic sales, customer success, rollouts, um, kind of having from the other side of the table view being being customers of software. Um so that that's that's the second um, second big bucket, and then third, again because of the efficiency we drive in our model, we we do truly have more time to be active and engaged. And I think anyone who knows the Peakspan team um, can say hand over heart that 
that we kind of lean in and are active on a number of projects and initiatives. Um, from a skill set perspective, you know, we come from kind of investment banking or consulting backgrounds typically. So in addition to being steeped in our spaces and partnering with industry folks, kind of that third leg of the stool is uh, helping with you know, SaaS KPIs, modeling, capitalization, um, building relationships with private equity firms and, and, and future strategic acquirers, um, all of that kind of strategic finance um, realm. That's where we, we can really lean in. And it's stuff that, candidly, a software CEO should know, but doesn't really have time for. Um, and we feel like it's a good, good compliment for us to help on those fronts. Good. So let's get to specific sectors. Why has Peakspan targeted uh, the supply chain space? Oh, don't don't get me started. Um, I think there's a a number of you know, really high level macro tailwinds, and I, I I like very simple and logical um, sectors. Um, a rule I learned from from one of my colleagues, uh, Matt Melimuka, is if you can't explain why a market is important or a company is important and what the company does to your, your mother or grandmother, you shouldn't be making the investment. Right. And I think in the supply chain and e-commerce sectors with a few exceptions, um, it's super easy to understand why it's important. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a trend and I, I know we were going to get to this later, Greg, but um, Amazon's a great place to start because everyone has ordered something from Amazon. So what do you get with Amazon? You get two-day delivery, you get access to really any product that you want, and you get dependability. The ability to go on a computer or your phone or via recurring purchase and order dog food for your dog and get it in two days and you know it's going to come and it's in one piece, uh, no matter really where you are in the world, is... An amazing feat to me. It's it's super complex when you unpack it, and obviously Amazon has decades and billions invested in their supply chain infrastructure. But um, the fact that we can do that as a society is um, is pretty mind blowing. And um, I, I like technologies that help drive, like I mentioned, efficiency, and then also. Um, in the case of kind of e-commerce, you know, consumer, you know, customer experience, consumer delight. So, you know, why do this as an investment theme? Um, first of all, there's real value to our society. I think it's not, you know, maybe on par with um, with with healthcare or other kind of socially responsible investing initiatives. But I mean, pretty pretty darn close, right? Bringing commerce to the world. Um, being able to deliver, you know, anywhere um, you, you go into verticals like the, the food and bev supply chain, the restaurant supply chain, the grocery supply chain, pharmaceuticals. I'll share an ex- example and then I'll I'll cease and desist. We we spoke to a few companies in the what's called the cold chain space. There's not a ton of independent cold chain companies that are a fit for us, but cold chain is maybe you know conceptually just supply chain visibility and traceability and orchestration when there's a high value, potentially perishable good involved. The two examples I'll give are Chipotle and AstraZeneca. 
Chipotle, I don't know if folks in in the U.S. remember about five years ago, they had a supply chain nightmare where they had bad chicken. And it was a you know, stock price depleting nightmare. It was a brand nightmare. It probably took them, I wasn't getting Chipotle that year, and it probably took them you know, a good year or so to recover and for people to maybe forget about it, but who, who knows? That could have been re- you know, avoided through putting sensors in all their cargo and using software to monitor uh, temperature and see where the bad batch of chicken was that spoiled and um, and not use it. So that, that's one one kind of tangible example of why I, I love supply chain. Two, everyone should read, just you can Google it, but read a couple articles on the supply chain technology that enabled the ongoing distribution of vaccine because it, it's pretty incredible how quickly and how widespread vaccines have been distributed. And um, the technology involved is, is cold chain as well. It's temperature monitored. And these are, I think, at the highest like social level, just really, really important, right? If we weren't able to distribute the vaccine this quickly, we're talking about lives. And there's other examples in supply chain I can draw on that that save lives, but that's probably the one that hits close closest to home in um in 2020, 2021. No, you're absolutely right. We we did an interview uh, with Arno Deshay of Novartis on the cold change. Uh, I would direct you to. I will absolutely check it out. Yeah, it's a super strategic space, and I think it, it has a lot of a, a lot of legs. Any food and bev or pharmaceuticals company needs to be all over that, especially. And this is leading into bleeding into some other trends, but. You know, in a world where social media is so prevalent and you know, brand impairment, you know, you're kind of one bad supply chain decision away from from brand, brand impairment. And then to put on top of all of that, which is a, a trend I'll keep coming back to, is consumer expectations, right? You know, the vaccine is maybe a different set of expectations and maybe hard to even pin down expectations. But take any other drug, if you go to a doctor and they prescribe you something. You're you're getting that prescription like pretty soon that week that day, and that you know, drugstore that pharmacy has to have in stock the right things to to make up your prescription or just have it available. I can't remember the last time like it took weeks to to have a prescription made up, and we we forget how hard that is and also how much of a luxury it is and how important it is to nail your pharmaceutical supply chain and make sure, you know, in cities like New York where I live or, or really anywhere to, to be able to offer medicine to people on a timely basis. And I know that that doesn't exist everywhere on the planet, obviously, but um, that also highlights why supply chain will continue to be an area of further investment and innovation to bring that type of optimization and convenience and safety to the delivery of pharmaceuticals, food and bev, other categories. In terms of your your question of kind of why, to me that that's the the highest level importance. I, I can go into you know reasons why I think the supply chain and procurement spaces are a great place to make you know good returns and, and partner with high growth entrepreneurs because segments are growing. But from a philosophical level, I think those are some some pretty darn uh, compelling reasons. 
Talk a little bit about uh, front of the house versus back of the house uh, software adoption. So I think that plays into the, the kind of topic of, of maybe also timing in the supply chain software space. So the way I would break it down is revenue versus cost. So supply chain, if you really think about it, is a lot to do with the, the costs and the, the assembly and the delivery, right? So it's like you're selling, that's a good example, you, you're selling water bottles, like swell, swell water bottles. Think about, there's a ton of technology involved in the production and delivery of swell water bottles. From a software adoption and maturity perspective, what technologies really matured first? Well, Swell needs a website. So website builders, they also need to sell online. That's an e-commerce platform. They need advertising. Sales tech and marketing tech is super mature with lots of tools that can help that company optimize Google, optimize different channels. Um, we're now getting into e-commerce, right? So omni-channel engagement, multi-channel order management, tools that help you sell on Amazon, the whole customer experience management, e-commerce software, advertising technology. These spaces have seen lots of investment over the years. Not to say supply chain hasn't, but I'd say those front of the house technologies in the commerce world just came first. People care about revenue more than they care about cost for now. From my purview, cost is just as important as revenue. A, a dollar is a dollar. If you can, and then maybe a better, more clean example is like pricing optimization. So let's say you were able to optimize your prices of selling your swell water bottles and you made an extra dollar on that bottle. Well, and that, that's great. And, and lots of software is out there to do that. But what if you also optimize your supply chain to reduce the cost of delivery by $2. I'll take that over the $1. So, so I think I see more opportunity, more kind of just raw white space, greenfield, whatever you want to call it, opportunity for software platforms to be adopted to optimize to optimize spend. This it cuts into like themes that we could talk about, like direct procurement, indirect procurement, but it also extends down to the manufacturing floor to logistics, right? You know, the, I forgot the stat, but for for every $100, when you break down the cost to deliver a product that's been ordered online, there's a just astronomical amount of value that gets lost to supply chain logistics and distribution. Well, what I like about that, I'll actually steal, I'll steal a great example from a, um, entrepreneur I, I spoke with today in the private aviation space for procurement. If you look at the cost to deliver an Uber ride versus a cost to deliver a business chartered flight, 95% of the value of the flight it goes to the, the cost, like very costly, very unoptimized. Uber, so like 5% margin goes to the, the flight charter for Uber, 50% margin goes to the driver. So that, that logistics process for Uber, even though Uber drivers would probably, you know, argue that they're not getting paid enough, the actual logistical cost involved in orchestrating those rides is just 
uh, to use a, a bad pun, uber optimized, right? It's it's fully efficient, fully algorithmically driven. There's very little overhead involved, but Uber is the exception. The overhead involved in most of supply chain logistics is very high, which tells me there's a lot of room to optimize it, a lot of room to improve, and a lot of cost to be taken out over time through you know intelligent optimization, shared services models, more like marketplace business models, and overall just more digitization. So I'll pause there, but that's a uh, that's how I think about the, the opportunity in front of the house versus back of the house. Now, obviously for optimization, leveraging data sets is, is critical. Talk about uh, PeakSpan's perspective on data and supply chain management. Yeah, it's a great, great topic. I would say at the highest level, we think the next generation of SaaS market leaders will win with a fast plus data approach. What do I mean by that? You, you think about what categories of software have been kind of penetrated to the point where you have a market leader, a successful outcome, and there will be new categories of applications where it's purely you know application workflow, efficiency driven. There, there will be some of those, but a lot of the biggest categories have been um, dominated by a leader. So like Maybe Zenefits is a good example, or like an enterprise software application like the um, the source to pay space. Those winners have already risen based on just providing applications. I don't think there's a lot of room for a next generation to win just with application. I think you need a data component as well. So applications that can sit in between multiple sets of data, or maybe they are helping generate data. We have a partnership with a company called XOI um, in the uh, MEP, so mechanical, electrical, and plumbing field service space, where they enable technicians in the field to collect very valuable data on assets and the, the HVAC assets, so your air conditioners and whatnot. So whether you're collecting data and then using AI and ML to drive intelligence and value, or maybe you sit between five different systems and you ingest that data and correlate it and surface intelligent recommendations and observations. In any case, whichever kind of method that you have to get and harness and drive value from data, that is becoming a almost kind of prerequisite to drive kind of outlier outcomes, especially in segments that have been around for a while. The the procurement space is a, a clean example in my brain. You have you know, Coupa, who's doing really well in, in spend spend management and in, in indirect procurement, and they're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Story for for another time, but I think the next you know spend management for enterprise winner will have to be coming from a kind of spend intelligence or um, uh, spend uh, you know using AI and ML, ML to optimize spend and surface outcomes, or maybe you're doing um, strategic sourcing. And you're optimizing, you're doing what kind of Scout RP did, but through more data and intelligence. So I think bottom line is that the bar is raised the next five to 10 years in the software world where you need to be thinking about data. Cannot, you can no longer just be a, you know, a sweet, slick application provider. And it's not that cut and dry, but broadly speaking, that's how we think about data. We're very, very bullish on it, obviously. 
Now, you've touched on a number of applications and solutions. Where are we in terms of uh, the level of adoption uh, in the space? Oh, it's a good it's a good question. It, so it, it obviously depends on the segment, but in the extreme, I'll answer it a few different ways. So let's look at like the most penetrated segment, uh, ERP. ERP is fully penetrated or close, depending on how you define it. But I would say um, there's still lots of opportunity through, you know, cloud-based ERP displacing on-premise ERP, which is still just more widespread than I ever could have imagined. Verticalized ERP, so ERPs that, you know, pick apart a specific vertical and do a better job than SAP. Mid-market ERP, where I guess to to kind of re-answer my question for the mid-market, mid-market ERP, depending on how you define it. Yes, a lot of folks have NetSuite and other providers of that that nature, but if you go maybe even a step lower than that, there there is some some probably um, you know Microsoft and you know, Excel and just cobbled together type solutions where you can you can make hay. But yeah, I'd say the ERP segment is probably the full most full penetrated, and even there there are ways to to play it. Then on the other side of the spectrum. We see, you know, I'll go a little off script and hit on the um, the field, the, the the construction field, or what XOI does, the uh, the service kind of technician field. We've heard stats very recently where it's still fifty percent pen and paper, right? So, you know, you have construction workers that are filling out time cards or or doing safety workflows, and it's fifty percent just anything, any software, and then. Obviously, you'll have new categories. I'd, I'd say, you know, some kind of supplier onboarding and supplier information management centric themes. They're obviously using some types of software, but for, for some of the newer, more exciting categories that we think will be adopted widespread going forward, still a ton of ground to cover, still a ton of adoption to be had. So again, depending on the subsegment, it can go anywhere from, you know, the quote unquote hundred percent penetrated ERP segment to you know twenty percent, ten percent, um to you know pick pick your low number. So um I, I'd say it ranges and then if I had to average it all out, I'd say in the early to mid innings, right? In in the third third inning of nine. Now what do you see as uh as the set of core values uh in supply chain management? Yeah, value I see in the space. Um I think from a um, from a logistics perspective, there is a lot of a lot of room for for further optimization and and just quicker delivery. So that that's one maybe form of value is we've come such a long way in terms of like globalization, being able to be a brand deliver worldwide, but it's still like you still might have to wait a week to to get something or in a B2B setting you're you know, you're a uh, a car manufacturer or heavy equipment manufacturer and you'd be surprised at still how slow and inefficient that kind of supply chain is in, in terms of orders come in being able to fill those orders making sure you are in cohesive kind of communications with your suppliers, you have the right parts, you're able to fill the right orders. One example that I like to give is you are working with a bunch of suppliers to fill 
like a high value order, like you're, you have like 200 cars you're putting together and you have to communicate with those suppliers to make sure you have enough wheels and enough hoods and even more of like the, the nuts and bolts, right? If you slip up on like one PO, because someone's out out to lunch that day, your whole <laughs> your whole delivery could be delayed. Your your end customer could be delayed two weeks because one of your suppliers didn't deliver their part, right? So the fact that we're still not at a point where that's like five nines accurate, zero chance of missing a supplier shipment that your you know, then core product would rely on, and then you miss a core customer delivery across the, the world, it just means that we have we have a lot more value to, to drive. So maybe to take it a different way real quick and to summarize, I think if you're an enterprise, if you're a manufacturer, reducing mistakes in your supply chain, Chipotle, another, another example. So re- reducing errors, driving more efficiency, maybe on the efficiency side, another example. At some large global enterprises that I won't name, it's not uncommon to have departments of people, 100 people, 200 people, where all they do is receive paper invoices, enter them into an ERP. That's their day job, nine to five. They they could not figure out how to digitize the process of invoice kind of intake and sync, and then, you know, move that data on its way into the the value chain. So the, the fact that, again, these are just kind of random examples, but the fact that that exists means there is hundreds of millions to optimize in the supply chain. So um, I'd say reduction of of errors, increase in efficiency, and that would lead to reduction of cost. And then I I would also say, I don't know if you want to move on to to trends, Greg, like sustainability, or you want to save that for later, but... Yeah, let's save that. I I actually, I want to touch a little bit on the importance of labor, which obviously we've seen with Amazon, PPE, food production. Talk about that piece. Yeah, absolutely. So I think people are obviously a very important part to the supply chain. The the classic kind of saying is, is people plus process plus technology. So I don't know if this is the direction you were going, but but just to kind of debunk the the, the myth of t- technology being kind of a black box, we, we think the next, or, or just even currently, that the, the winning software solutions are ones that help optimize people, that help with change management. So it's kind of like technology plus people plus new process working in cohesion. I'll point maybe one more time to interacting with suppliers. That's a, a good example because you you can au- try to automate it all you want and you can try to take people out of the equation all you want and you know ingest supplier data. But at the end of the day, it's your people dealing with your suppliers. So you have to take into account the human element that, that's one way I'll answer that question, just in terms of making sure that the, the people and change management portion are in kind of cohesive effort with your with your technology. And then two, and maybe this is the direction you were going, Greg, we, we focus on kind of um, human capital management and peak span as a, as a central theme as well. But within the supply chain space and manufacturing space in particular, people are a part of the supply chain. They're working on products, they're delivering products, they're driving trucks. So yeah, I mean, there's tons of technology that's coming to market that helps people adopt and optimize. And I think taking a step back in business software, 
we see a a changing of the guard. So you have 65-year-old business owners in the logistics space or the manufacturing space where they were not picking up the phone call of, you know, insert start startup X that's selling you product Y, but they retire and hand the reins to their son or daughter who has been in the logistics space all their life, but also has been surrounded with technology since they were born. And they're certainly ready to use technology to make their life easier at work because they've used it at home to make their life easier their, their entire existence. So the whole changing of the guard dynamic is one that kind of happens slowly over time. We've been talking about it for years, but it will continue to persist if you just think about the fact that I think smartphones have been around for you know, God knows how long. And now most people in the workforce use an iPhone to do things to drive efficiency in their life. So why not in their work? And then maybe just on that note, that's another just direct change we're seeing. And I think the pandemic is a good example. I'll point to e-commerce quickly, even though we're talking about people. But throughout COVID, you had entire generations who were resistant to change in software be forced online to order groceries online, to buy Christmas presents online because they couldn't go stand in line at you know, insert retailer X. And now that they've gotten a taste of that, it's our view that in e-commerce, but also in other flavors of supply chain, that they're not going back because um, they, they've seen the light and they've seen what, what these technologies can do to drive you know, positive impact. So bringing it back to maybe logistics, you think about you know, truck drivers, industry that has been resistant to change. And I think it's you're only going to see outsized acceleration and adoption of technology for construction workers, truck drivers, technicians, for all, for all the reasons I just, just mentioned. So that's how I, I would cut the, uh, the labor question, Greg. Well, I think the best way to illustrate this is uh, to go into greater detail on XOI, which you've touched on. But um... Talk about the the thesis that uh, that you developed to arrive at the investment in XOI. Yeah, it's a great it's a great great question. So there are a number of macro tailwinds that support the XOI case. We we make our our investments for a number of reasons: team, culture, opportunity, go to market model. But sticking strictly to like why. The technician enablement space is important. Few reasons. One, you have what's called the skills trade gap. So, the rise of four-year institutions and just the proportion of high school graduates that go to four-year institutions versus trade schools has really done the space a disservice. Trade schools are are awesome. They're, they're two years, and graduating from trade schools, you you have pretty high-paying jobs. But you know for Whatever kind of cultural reasons, it's become you know just the the goal to go to a, a four year college that usually leads you to a white collar job, which has put a lot of strain on the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing fields. Why does that matter? You have field service organizations, you have you know techs that have been working there for thirty years, they're retiring. You need to fill those gaps because ACs continue to break down. <laughs> Air conditioners are not getting fixed on their own. So these field service organizations need to fix them. They are now kind of flooded with quote unquote rookie talent who don't know how to fix air conditioners. Yet the folks that do are 65 and are too old to get on a hot 
roof, 100 degree roof. How does XOI solve this problem? Kind of a couple ways. One, they have digital tools that help capture information in the field that actually doesn't so much help them do their job versus delight their customers, meaning they take recordings of what they did on the job site and they'll post videos and pictures to the kind of customer summary and say, hey, this is what we did. This is what was broken. There's not be any problems. And, and uh, the industry kind of eats it up and provides an immense kind of customer satisfaction. Kind of pillars two and three to the XOI value prop where they help solve the skills trade gap. So one, they have a knowledge base where you get access to wireframes and diagrams, the largest aggregation in, this, in the vertical. So you're taking a picture of a plate uh, in the field with that first pillar, and then that plate number automatically pulls up a sketch that helps you understand where to you know, open the unit and fix it. Pillar three is kind of like FaceTime on steroids. So you can call back to HQ and ring up the 65-year-old tech who couldn't get on the roof, but they know exactly how to fix your unit that you're working on out there, and they can walk you through it via annotation and, and, and kind of video chat. So we like this space for kind of that core reason. It, it solves a real pain point. It affects real people. And from a business perspective, it drives efficiency and revenue to the field service organization. So yeah, there's a lot of these uh, mechanical and electrical plumbing field service firms out there. There's also other verticals like PEST that other software companies attack. It's a it's a pretty popular space nowadays, but in the, the segment that XOI plays in, they reduce what's called second truck rolls. So if a junior technician gets out there and can't fix the unit, traditionally you have to call in a second worker to come help, and that is time and money. And then the revenue uplift kind of angle I already mentioned, which is they drive excellent customer experience, repeat customers. They can also identify areas to do preventative maintenance or installation while on the roof so they can say, hey, we noticed this other unit is not looking so hot. Should we send you a proposal to fix it? And they can generate that proposal on the fly and, and uh, really drive revenue uplift. Now, I know you have several investments pending in the space and we'll, we'll have you back to talk about those, but uh, I'd like to move now to a, a terrific blog post that you penned on uh, trends to watch for in 2021. Why don't you walk through those? Yeah, happy to. And this um, this should be out in the next week or so. Do you want me to walk through the, the headlines first or go kind of trend by trend? Trend by trend. And uh, you know, once it's published, we'll provide it to our listeners. Fantastic. So the first headline, and then I'll, I'll go into the detail, is that Knowing and managing and communicating with your suppliers has just never been more important. We've done a ton of research in this space. You can call it supplier experience management, supplier information management. I think the supplier onboarding or risk and governance, um, and I'll, I'll unpack these, but the fact that there's not a defined category yet and again, we're making a, a, a partnership in the space. But the, the the fact that there's not a defined category yet, to me, opens up my eyes to a very large opportunity. Because when you think about the various kind of 
silos of data and constituent groups in the supply chain, a lot of them are covered well, but for whatever reason, and I'll get into maybe the why, but for, for, for some actually very, I guess, tangible reasons, supplier data, supplier management has been kind of chaotic. And you know, it starts all the way back with, with SAP Ariba taking a, a crack at supplier portals and supplier orchestration and not getting it right. It has to do with large global enterprises who have tens of thousands of suppliers and they are kind of these big chunky siloed organizations where maybe you're a pharmaceuticals company and you acquired three other companies this year. So you have three different supply chains or maybe you have eight ERPs because you're in every continent and every country and maybe you have multiple business units. So what that kind of results in is lots of ERPs, maybe some some source-to-pay platforms, and tons and tons of suppliers. And obviously, they don't talk to each other. There's tons of supplier overlap. Obviously, to onboard a supplier, you're usually emailing them a form or, God forbid, you know, calling your suppliers to ask them for updated data. If you really unpack the problem, it's eye-opening how many resources, systems, and processes are kind of broken or you know out there and cobbled together via maybe an MDM solution, which is master data management, or someone's t- trying to take like a Salesforce and really jockey it up and make it manage their suppliers. Obviously, Salesforce is meant for for customers. So, so anyway, there's this big heaping mess when it when it comes to suppliers for whatever reason. Enterprises, I don't think have gotten it right. Whereas spend management, sure, we now have platforms that help with that. ERP has been around for a long time. And I think even if you think about data and you want to even take a bigger step back and say, how do enterprises manage data? I think, yeah, you now have like data warehouses and data lakes and data scientists getting hired and you you can do whatever you can dream up with enough people and and, uh, data analytics solutions. But the reason suppliers is so hard to nail and, and so important from my perspective is that you're dealing with so many constituents that are outside the four walls. So imagine you are a big government regulated manufacturer and you're dealing with 50,000 suppliers worldwide and we're in the year 2021 and you don't have a digital means to onboard a supplier, ensure that the supplier is compliant, ensure that they're not violating labor laws, ensure that you're actually talking to the right people. You don't know if you have the right bank account details. You don't know if you're falling victim to a phishing scam. You also don't know if you're paying the same supplier seven different times on seven different continents and paying different prices. And then lastly, you get a call from your board and they say, you know, hey, Greg, you know, it's January 2021. Last year was chaotic. We didn't really have a view on our suppliers. Our board decided that we need to stand up to a sustainability pledge. And we also need to stand up to a supplier diversity pledge. And we also need to stay out of the cover of the New York Times for getting entangled in one of our you know, suppliers in X region that's doing things that we wouldn't want them to do. You would turn to your maybe you know, supply chain officer, chief data officer, whoever, and say, oh my goodness, how do we do this? Are we going to call them? Are we going to email them? Have them fill out a survey? 
are we going to do we, do we even have like where's my supplier data set can i export it somewhere you know no so i think the trends that we'll unpack through the rest of today's call in, in one way shape or form they do sit on a foundational building block of knowing your supplier data being able to communicate with your supplier in a compliant way and ensuring that you're not putting your enterprise at risk so i'll pause there that that's the the impassioned pitch on why supplier communication and, and data integrity is going to be so important going forward. Good. Now let's move on to AI and ML. AI and ML, and I was reminded in the in the beginning of your um your your podcast intro how passionate you are about this. So mm-hmm. it'll be an interesting dichotomy based on what I'm about to say. Very simply, I think it's still too early. I I think AI and ML will have a profound impact on supply chain, but via what I just said around not having a handle on your supplier data and that kind of data integrity issue, I think proliferates other silos, but garbage in, garbage out. And until you have a handle on your data, I think AI and ML solutions will struggle to get mass adoption. I think forward leaning, early adopters, sure. And I think it could be sooner than I even think, but this is a my 2021 predictions is that we're still well, we're still too early, and it goes back to what you said, Greg, a while ago, which is back of the house has adopted a little slower than front of the house. AI and ML are having their heyday in other categories, but that heyday is not supply chain in the in the year of 2021. But how can you do optimization without either? I, I think you. I, I think you're you're right. I'm not. I'm not gonna argue with that. And not to say AI and ML have no no place in supply chain to today. I, I guess maybe we should um, level set in that what I'm kind of writing about and talking about is is actually not necessarily geared at an operator versus we're making predictions on the, the software space. So I think just the preponderance of new technologies and software that we think will gain like real adoption and drive real impact are going to be a little more foundational, at least for now. I don't know. I, I'd say AI and ML definitely have a place, but the, the, you don't need the, the best of the best of the best because I don't think supply chain leaders are nailing the basics. I think there's just more ground to cover, more low-hanging fruit, like digitizing communications. If we want to go to the the data path, I'd say data integrity, like being able to just grab the data. You see digital transformation projects happening quite a bit. You're you're trying to bridge together multiple data sets. And then also to my point about data collection, let's use XOI as an example. They do AI and ML. They, They are going to do amazing things this year with AI and ML, but it took them years and years and years of collecting this data out in the field. They're the only ones who have this data set and they've spent a lot of resource on optimizing that data, making sure it's clean, it has integrity, it has meaning. And for them to do it in an antiquated vertical like like MEP is pretty impressive from my perspective. And that, that's just an example of, um, of, of how much legwork it takes to collect and normalize data so yeah, the opportunity is there 100%, but I think it's going to take some time. Point well taken. How important is sustainability becoming in, in the space? So, so important. I've been watching the headlines daily, the pledges by 
global brands and enterprises to be more sustainable. And the goals they set are, first of all, super admirable, and they're just more and more prevalent. I don't want to go into any kind of you know, personal mantras, but you know, I, I think if as a world, as people, as enterprises, if we're not thinking about sustainability on an ongoing basis, you know, we're, we're screwed. Our, our, our future generations are, are toast. And that's really sad to say. So I think that fact is, is being well kind of recognized and realized more and more every year, which is great. And finally, it's gotten to the C-suite and it's gotten to a point where if you're a big company, PepsiCo is the example I gave in the, the article where they announced their goal to be net zero emissions by 2040. Honestly, if you're not doing that, if you're a peer of PepsiCo and you're not doing that, you know, shame on you. And I also think you'll start to kind of lose voice in, in the long run. I think the leaders, you, you also see this a little bit with like the Facebooks and Googles of the world, you know, leaders in segments are leaders in important topics like sustainability. So I can answer this question kind of seven ways to Sunday, but the, the bottom line is the the, the influence is coming from every direction. It's coming from consumers who demand that their products they buy, that those companies that make the products are thinking about sustainability. It comes from employees. Employees are now talking more and more about working for companies that are taking on sustainability head on. And then investors. We're seeing it in our, our segment in lots of different ways in terms of investors. I think um, I might misquote this, but I think it's BlackRock that recently made a really big wave in this realm. And I think that that type of announcement will, will just be seen over and over and over again in, in 2021 and will lead to it will lead to a lot of goodness. I'll say that. Well, as as you said, uh, you know, it's an existential issue at this point. And if it's not addressed, you know, there are tremendous costs for all enterprises. So there's certainly an economic imperative. Let's move on to what you describe as the digital transformation myth. Debunk that for me. I, I hit on this in drips and, and drabs earlier in the call, so I won't spend too much time on it. But I think where we sit today, especially in large enterprise supply chain, we're obviously pretty far advanced in in technology use, despite my comments about penetration and maybe maybe I'm more talking about kind of next gen solutions, cloud based solutions. But you know, essentially we've been working with ERPs for a long time. You had categories like EDI that have been around and it's kind of sitting everywhere. You you have lots of different platforms. And I think digital transformation initiatives are, it's a a term I've been hearing more and more, and I've really been studying a lot of the consulting firms and what they're doing with with, uh, large enterprise manufacturing organizations. And I see a a couple of roadblocks to these projects. So one, I think (laughs) the tough thing historically has been the tenure of the, the people, the champions, has been low relative to the length of the project. So the the running joke is that the CPO who implemented you know Coupa or Reba is the, the safest job in the world because by the time the issues rise to the surface, that CPO is gone. Like the tenure of a implementation project outlives the tenure of the leader sometimes. So um, 
that's a problem mm-hmm. um, just to see things through. And then, yeah, all the legacy software out there, I think, you know, it, it's foolish to think that, you know, a, a big organization is going to like drop Oracle or SAP and take on some new cloud-based ERP. Like it, it feels like a uh, inevitability that they'll always have them. So I think we're seeing newer technologies come about that can complement SAP or Oracle with maybe like a, a low-code platform or I mentioned MDM. I think cloud-based solutions that sit on top of the, the ERP can be interesting. I also think you know RPA is a really hot, interesting category where you're you're just leaving that big clunky system in place and automating around it. But I guess to take a step back, the the other two roadblocks and or just considerations are you can do anything you want in a large enterprise with technology. You have what I call these like blank canvas solutions, which are the MDM platforms of the world that are RPA platforms where you can surely like take a bunch of IT resources mixed with a bunch of like, you know, a um, Nalteryx or a Snowflake or a Informatica or you take your pick. Like you can take any software you want and take a team of data scientists and IT professionals in an enterprise and cobble together whatever you want. But I, I think we're kind of kidding ourselves that that's if that's easy <laughs> or or the, the actual success rate of that it remains to be seen. So I think the, the bets that we're making in terms of like digital transformation or just like digital enhancement is looking at more verticalized or just more more verticals and solutions that can solve a problem for a subset of customers like retail or pharmaceuticals have a much better shot at creating a real kind of category and creating a a soft a true software solution that can stand alone surely it's integrated but to say that you're going to get some large enterprise software platform to come in and either replace the ERP or do something on a similar scale is just really tough because there's all these variables that I mentioned like um, implementation time and legacy systems and and then lastly people and change management that that's the toughest part so it takes people and projects and 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 focus to to get these large enterprises to to digitally transform, quote unquote. So, all in all, the the million dollar Deloitte contract is not doing anyone any good from from my perspective. Now, you you've talked a lot about Amazon, and I have to say, pretty much every interview I've done talks about the eight hundred pound gorilla. But if you want to talk a little bit more about Amazon as a model and how companies can equip themselves to compete with them. Great, great, great topic, obviously. I'll keep it short, as I imagine people are, are fatigued. But the, the take I have it have on it is you are a let's let's say you're even a a D to C brand, which is kind of where where it's at nowadays in terms of retail. You can sell straight to Amazon. You can sell only through Amazon if you want. Let them take your whole supply chain. But if you're like a real big high growth D2C brand, that's not really an option because you, you've already seen a ton of margin pressure and you don't want to kind of sell your soul and give up all that margin to, to them. If you're a small business, you know, maybe you think about it. But anyway, what excites us is that there are multiple categories that will help. Let's just use a D2C brand, for example, like uh, like Burrow Couches. They're, they're a very modern consumer-centric 
supply chain, like just as much as they, they do couches and they do them like they're configurable couches that come in the mail. So just as important as the couch being comfortable, it's the delivery experience of the couch. Like the reason Burrow is great is because you can order a couch online and get it probably the next week and put it together yourself. It comes to your like apartment building. You don't have to um, get a big delivery truck to come and pay a delivery person. That's the value prop. So anyway, for Burrow to have a supply chain that competes with Amazon, there's a couple categories we've seen pop up that that help. So one is this whole idea of co-warehousing. So Burrow wants to deliver to the whole United States. They don't own warehouses, maybe they own one, but they're a high growth T2C brand. So they're not really in the business of like buying up a ton of physical real estate that's going to eat into their their money they need to grow. They'd rather spend it on marketing and branding. So Co-warehousing is the concept of you use software and shared warehouse space to ensure you have borough couches in LA, Chicago, Atlanta, Texas, New York. And it's been decided that if you have couches in those five hubs, you'll be able to deliver within four days to any consumer in the US. And then based on how orders are coming in, you can shift inventory between those five hubs. Amazon has the infrastructure Walmart has the infrastructure, but no one else has the infrastructure really to compete in a high volume, high demand e-commerce ecosystem on the same kind of playing field as, as Amazon, which is why we need shared services models, which is why we need software to help intelligently optimize inventory that extends itself to multi-channel order management, supply chain as a service e-commerce shipping for maybe more for the the small business segment using companies like like Shippo to help with that. Just a delightful user-friendly shipping experience, which, you know, FYI is what Amazon offers, right? So if you're, if you have your own kind of website and your small business, you want to use Shippo to ship that experience is, is kind of rock solid and user-friendly and it looks and feels the same as Amazon, right? So a company like like Shippo only, I think, exists because small businesses need to compete with eBay and with and with Amazon and with with other and Etsy, right? So if you're if you want to be a standalone, direct to consumer seller from your own website, you need all these things. You need a great website. You can use you know Equid. You need to ship great. You can use Shippo. You need multi-channel order management and warehouse management and shared warehouses. And maybe like you have Narvar and you're using returns management because when you return something on Amazon, you also have a delightful experience. So the categories are endless in e-commerce supply chain. And each category, I can say the same thing, which is you're empowering the the, uh, the seller to and the merchant to to look and feel like Amazon without having the Amazon backbone. Obviously, supply chains are being built out in in a range of industries from food and beverage to PPE. So talk about what's happening in terms of supplier diversity. Another super important topic in 2021, I mentioned it in my little board example, but it's a board level initiative. Folks have real kind of mandates to improve their supplier diversity. It's obviously for great reasons. We've been tracking the theme for years. Some of the early players have been been acquired by um, like Nexus got acquired by Coupa. There's other 
players like that, that help specifically with diversity. Um, I won't name all of them, but the, the bottom line here is that it's a board level initiative. Specifically, what does this mean? It means women owned, minority owned, and in some cases, kind of dictated by size. So you know you can't only work with you know in the extreme, right? It would be non-women owned, non-minority owned, big suppliers. That's you know not not great, and it, um, it it leads to kind of monopolies and lack of opportunity, and especially equal opportunity. So lots of good reasons here, and I can make the same claim maybe to a lesser extent than sustainability for whatever reason. But I do think employees and, and uh, customers are demanding this as well. But really, it's coming from the board and it's coming from real mandates, which is great to see. Excellent. Let's talk a, a little bit more about trends in terms of solutions. Obviously, the general trend in the software space is always to move from point solutions to to platforms or comprehensive solutions. How is that being evidenced in supply chain management? So I think this ties nicely back to the adoption discussion that we had earlier, but I'd say at peak span, we've broadly seen ebbs and flows when it comes to point solutions proliferating and winning the day versus best versus um versus an all-in-one platform. So in certain periods of time you see all-in-one platforms winning out. In other periods of time you see in certain categories of software buyers kind of having an a la carte menu to pick from and saying in the procurement world, for example, we want this platform for strategic sourcing. We want this platform for supplier experience. We want this platform for procurement intelligence. We want this platform for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is what we're seeing. That is what we're hearing from this world. And it, it is kind of five to 10 years, maybe five years behind the sales tech or security software spaces, both spaces that we look at at PeakSpan. If you look at the sales tech space, on average, on average, I was going to ask you the question, Greg, but I know I, I already shared the answer. On average, sales leaders leverage 43 tools for their, for their teams. In security software, it's 75. There are too many, too many tools out there. They're at a point where they're now consolidating and going more to all-in-one platforms. But in supply chain procurement, we are seeing, you know, we don't have too many tools yet because there, there hasn't been as much investment as there has been in, in sales tech and security. So for that reason, and also because SAP is asleep at the switch and not innovating, they're in harvest mode. So I think professionals are kind of sick of that and have these initiatives like supplier diversity, sustainability, and supply chain visibility, and supplier management, and Maybe they want to use AI and ML, and maybe they want to do strategic sourcing. They are adopting several solutions that are best in breed to do all of those things. That is great for us to, to hear um, from an investing lens. And also, I'd say for entrepreneurs out there, that is also a strong positive that you know, when we speak with chief supply chain officers and CPOs and executives, that they are taking that a la carte strategy and adopting those those point solutions. And then, you know, maybe over time, five, 10 years from now, you'll see 
next-gen platform players start to consolidate. I also say already in procurement, for whatever reason, anyone who gets to any kind of interesting scale gets acquired by you know, by Cooper or Jagger or whoever. So um, there may even be consolidation sooner. But from an adoption perspective, definitely seeing best in breed point solutions went out over an all-in-one platform. Now let's close with what you have forecast in in terms of specialization and verticalization. Give us some details there. This is a, a topic we are very passionate about at Peakspan and especially in the supply chain and procurement spaces. So vertical SaaS as a headline title for this section, specialists, in my view, will win out over horizontal solutions, especially going forward where you, know, you have a lot of penetration with horizontal solutions. For example, CRM, great simple example. Salesforce is dominant, but you see CRM players come in and attack every little space. There's actually a, a CRM for VC that keeps contacting me, but we use Salesforce. I guess that's a, a contradiction. There is a CRM for the cannabis space. There is a CRM for the restaurant space. There is a CRM for everything. Now, again, that's front of the house. So back of the house, we see some nice gaps in folks that are doing back of the house, back of the house optimization, supply chain, spend management, order management. Maybe we even extend this to e-commerce to kind of complete the whole stack. We think folks that focus on food and beverage, grocery and restaurant, pharmaceuticals, I mentioned cold chain, cannabis, a very high growth vertical going forward um, that's going to need its own software stack. It's very different. E-commerce, although it's not in the same vein as a vertical, I do think it you could consider it a vertical, right? So supply chain for e-commerce brands that sell online. That extends to things like drop shipping as well, which is a different category for another day. Separately, I've written about this in the past. I think in spaces like procurement, you have different spend categories, right? So in one case, we have verticals like for customers, but you also have spend. So is someone helping you uh, manage your aviation spend, your software spend, your contingent workforce, travel? We've already seen a lot of these platforms rise to power and still think there's opportunity for specialists to emerge and just hit one type of spend and hit it way better than than Ariba can. This thesis kind of persists in a lot of different ways in the way we're looking at the space. But, you know, I think broadly where we are in the software lifecycle and in supply chain, for the most part, categories are, you know, we're 80% there in terms of every category kind of existing. I think there'll be new categories for sure, but software's been around for a while and people have founded companies to optimize every node of the supply chain. Therefore, we're not looking at platforms that are come in and compete with Manhattan Associates or Reba. We're looking at platforms that are going to take a defined market segment that's still a plenty big TAM and go in and you know, more or less build similar technology, probably better next gen using data and build it to the discrete needs of that vertical to solve that vertical's problems in the way that makes sense for that vertical and delight customers in that vertical and build up kind of market dominant positions within each of these smaller spaces. We think that's a 
a winning formula going forward in software, but also in supply chain and procurement. Um, lastly, from a logistics perspective, we see nice little segments of opportunity where you have kind of specialist logistics providers. So maybe it's you know C, Air, um, LTL, Drayage, maybe it's different cargo types. So it's like bulky items or specific lanes like international, right? There's um, there's lots of little, and when I say little, these opportunities are billion dollar TAMs as well. But when I say little, they're, they're just really strategic because in the logistics space from what we found is there's a lot of nuance when you're going international, when you're shipping bulky items, when you're doing things like drayage, when you're matching supply and demand for specific regions, lots of nice little opportunities there that we're, we're looking forward to digging into. But that's all I got on that one. Well, thank you, Jack. That was rich. Uh, plenty to digest. Yes, as that uh, is that was super fun. Looking forward to to publishing that one. Hopefully, you hear some some feedback. I, I like disagreements. It's a great great way to learn. So, yeah, I suspect in twenty twenty two, a lot of these will be the same, but some will be wrong for sure, and and there'll be new ones, which is really exciting because the, the pace in this space just continues to, to pick up, which I like. Well, we look forward to contributing to the dialogue. I'd like to thank our listeners. Please visit your favorite podcast platform and give us a review and subscribe. We're building a resource for you. Email us at info at futurechain.org with your feedback, suggestions on guests and questions. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.